James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We are anticipating, Lord willing, a week of meetings, revival meetings, with the with Pastor Webb. So tonight I'm going to look at some hindrances to revival as we prepare for those meetings coming up on Sunday. Did I turn my... I didn't. All right, James chapter 4. Let's read 1, one through 8. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come the not hence even of your lusts at war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not the friendship of the world is the enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But it giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Let's read verse 9 10 also. Be afflicted and mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege you have to open your word tonight. And Father, we anticipate the week of meetings ahead. And we ask, Father, that you work in each of our hearts uh, to for our good and for thy glory. Help Pastor Webb as he comes. I pray that you just help him as he preaches each day, and every, each uh, Sunday and twice, and then each evening. I pray that you just direct him into the preaching of your word to give us what we need that will be a help and a blessing to us and encouragement and challenge uh, and we'll just thank you and praise you do praise your help tonight and you be glorified and we pray in Jesus name Amen there's some misunderstanding of what a revival is some people have this idea when lots of people get saved that's revival no that's an evangelistic crusade Getting people getting saved is not revive. You don't revive something that's dead. You give it life. A revival is just a renewal. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's like um, Ryan renewed his truck after he wrecked it. He brought it back. You know, to to life. You know, to 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 activity and vigor and to flourish again after it had declined. You know, I like to, I don't like things that don't work right. In fact, I like to, uh, and I've often thought about this, but I don't have the time or money to restore a tractor, you know. Um, but, but uh, and maybe I don't have the patience for it either. But anyway, but revival is, it's a bringing back or coming back into use, attention, or being after a decline. And so revival really is about God's people. It's about God's people. You know, the children of Israel had, had uh, revivals at different times. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 2, <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 2, the, 
uh, Nehemiah, I was going to say the prophet, he wasn't a prophet, but he certainly was a man of God. But Nehemiah 4 verse 2, he says, And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are burnt? So here they were, those stones that had been, you know, the temple and the city walls had been destroyed and burned. The temple had been burned. And so these stones that were the foundation and the building of the wall and the temple were all laying there in this rubbish. And they say, will they revive? In other words, will they renew or bring those stones back into use? And that's exactly what Nehemiah and Children of Israel did. They brought that back into use, back into renewal. We have an example in, in the life of Jeremiah, for example. In Jeremiah chapter 20, in verse 7, you know, Jeremiah, the chapter here is talking about Pasher, who was the, who was the priest, uh, who was also the chief governor of the house of the Lord. Verse 1 tells us, Heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. So Jeremiah prophesied, you know, judgment's going to come on Jerusalem. He's prophesying. He's telling the king, why don't you just surrender to the king of Babylon so it would be well with you? In other words, if you don't want to die, surrender to the king of Babylon. Of course, the king didn't listen to him, so his sons were killed and his eyes were plucked out. Um, but anyway, so he's, he's prophesying. And Jeremiah, by, in verse 2 says, Then Pasher, who, who's the priest, smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And, and then if you drop down to verse 7, it says, And O Lord, this is Jeremiah speaking, Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, every one mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. So I'm just going to quit. I'm going to quit prophesying. After all, I get slapped. I get thrown in jail. I get put in stocks. So why should I keep prophesying? But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with bearing, and I could not stay. So, so Jeremiah, if you will, got a revival there uh, in, in the midst of his prophesying to the nation of Israel. So as we think about the revival tonight and some hindrances to revival, we see here in verse 1, hindrances or wars and fightings among you. Come whence, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members. You know, it is true, like Nathan said, man is terrible. The heart is deceitful, but all things and desperately wicked. You know, some, some, you know, You'd be amazed at the things that happen in churches. I'm talking about Baptist churches. When James says there's wars and fightings among you, he's talking about in the church. People fight. In fact, you know, I've heard this statement that all wars are religious, and I really think they are. I think that's a true statement. And I'm talking about all wars uh, are religious. Uh, atheism is a religion. So is communism. It's humanism. It's religion. But anyway, uh, so whence come wars and fightings among you? 
You know, there was war, really wars in the church Corinth. Now, what we're talking about is they weren't shooting each other or, you know, well, back in those days they'd have been stabbing each other. But, uh, you know, and, and cutting each other with swords. They weren't doing that yet. But they were cutting each other to pieces with words. God calls that war. There was a war of words going on in the church of Corinth. You know, you had this little group over saying, I'm a Paul. You know, he's a logical, you know, deep teacher of the Bible. And there's others over here and say, well, I'm of Apollos, and he's a great speaker. I mean, he can quote the scriptures. He's a great orator. But another one said, oh, I'm of Peter. Peter's a, a boisterous, you know, preacher. And then the other said, well, we're the real spiritual people. We're following Christ. And these were wars or divisions that they had created because Christ, Peter, Apollos, and Paul all taught the same thing. The only thing different about the four of them was their personalities. You know, a lot of people, I've seen this so, so often in, in churches, but people make great uh, big problems out of personalities. I don't like that guy's personality. Remember, we went to Texas years ago, and and uh, and Amy's aunt and uncle were going to a Southern Baptist church. They couldn't find an independent Baptist church. And I said, "This is in Austin, Texas." I said, "Surely a city this size has to have an independent Baptist church." Now we went to the Southern Baptist church on Sunday morning, and sitting in a Sunday school class, you know, the teacher and he was teaching from Hosea, and it was so, you know. Uh, politically correct, and I kept, I kept my hand up most of the social class because I wanted to say something. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, uh, acknowledge me, so I finally gave up. And and uh, and I said, I'm not going back at church. I said, it's got to be. And her uncle said, Oh, well, I just saw a church the other last week, not far from here. I don't know what it is. And uh, I said, Let's go check it out. And it was a Trinity Baptist Church, an independent Baptist church. So we went to visit. But the guy, the pastor, had a domineering personality. And Amy's aunt said, I don't like him. I said, it's not an issue. The issue shouldn't be whether you like him or whether you like his personality. Is The issue should be, does he preach the Bible? Does he practice the scriptures? And, you know, we, we went two times, we heard... Two good Bible messages. And I said, that's the issue. Not what is his personality like. Yes, it was very easy to see he had a domineering personality. Just from the way he conducted himself on the platform. It was a a rather large church. And and the way he took the leadership and control of things. And directed things. He was a very nice man. But he had a domineering personality. And see, people can get hung up on these personalities. and, And they'll overlook sin. Because of a personality, you know, we're not we're not all alike. Not everybody have a personality like me. You know, yeah. uh, you know, we don't don't. Not everybody has a nice personality or a personality that pleases you. And so, you know, these 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 at Corinth were causing division over personalities, not over doctrine, and that can cause. Divisions in a church. 
course, they, you know, were probably divided, well, they were divided over the, the, the wealthy and the poor. They had both in the church. They had, they had, they had merchant men and they had slaves. And they were in the Lord's Supper. They were violating the Lord's Supper because of that. And, you know, we're all familiar with that. So, so these, these things, you know, there can be party cliques that develop in a church that we have to be aware of and not allow. Uh, showing favoritism or partiality to those we like over others. Uh, and so, so these are things that hinder revival. We need to look at each other as children of God on a, in a relationship with God on a journey to become more like God and looking for giving each other the benefit of the doubt and looking to help and minister to one another. That's what the church is for. So wars and fightings among you. Then he says, Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members. You know, these, these things, these wars and fightings that are among us, come from the war that's fighting in our own members, our own lives, and our own lusts, seeking to have our way and our will. You see, the problem is, often, we don't like certain people because they rub us the wrong way. You know that rubbing you the wrong way? Maybe the Lord trying to get you to learn how to get along with everyone. And maybe the Lord trying to get you to learn how to minister to every kind of person. Because you go out those doors back there, and there's every kind of personality out there in the world that you need to learn to be able to minister to. And so when somebody rubs you the wrong way, you need to learn to be able to minister to them. And not, well, I just don't like that person. It is an issue of whether you like them or not. It's an issue of whether you do right to them or not. God's no respecter of persons. And we ought not be to either. And we ought not to persist in our own way. You know, we have to be willing to get out of our comfort zone. We have to be willing to get out of our comfort zone. Uh, to be stretched. To be pushed. And we have to be willing to obey the Lord no matter what He says. When God commands us not or to do, we need to do it and not ask questions. You know, we were all familiar with the story of Balaam. Uh, the king of Balak came to him and king of Moab came to him, Balak, king of Moab came to him and, and asked him to curse Israel. And, and he, so he went to God and said, you know, shall I go with him? And God said, no. So they came again with more riches and more honor. And so Balaam, instead of just telling him, I already told you no. He wants those riches. He wants that honor. So he goes and asks God again. And God says, go ahead. Go with him. But only what I say, tell you, that speak. So he goes. But you know, Balaam's own prophecy condemned his going. Because in, in Numbers 22, 23 verse 19, he tells Balak this, God is not a man that he should repent. See, God really didn't change his mind when he said, all right, go ahead. What happened there was Balaam 
Balaam persisted in his having his own way, persisted in trying to get those riches and that honor, and God said, okay, go ahead. But what he lost was his close fellowship with God. See, he persisted in doing his own thing. And when we persist in doing our own thing, we lose. Psalm 106 this is the children of Israel did this, you know, and this is this is a common thing that happens in our lives so often. In in uh, Psalm 106 verse 13, it says they soon forgot. Well, verse 12 says they believed they didn't believe they his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, and He gave them their requests but sent leanness into their soul. In other words, they got what they wanted, but they lost what they had. They lost fellowship. They lost the favor. They lost the protection of the Almighty God because they persisted in their own lusts. And James says these wars and fightings come hence of our own lusts that war in our members. You know, I've got to have my way. What's pride? Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. Now, if we believe the Bible, then we'd have to say that if there's contention somewhere, there's pride there. There's pride there. But the rest of that verse says, but with well-advised is wisdom. Now, what better advice can you get than the Word of God? When the Bible says that He is wisdom, and, and so uh, you know, we, we, we ought not persist in having our own way, and it's pride. In the Bible, we know very clearly, Proverbs chapter 6, there's six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination on them, and He's pride, look. Is the first one. James says, You lust and have not. You would kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Another reason we don't have is because we ask not. And why don't we ask? Why don't we men, as soon as we think we're lost, stop and ask directions? Of course, we don't have to do that anymore. We've got Google Map. But why don't we men, when we have a, have a package come, UPS or FedEx or whatever, and it has to be assembled, why don't we look at the directions instead of just thinking, I can put this together? Because we think we know how. The reason we don't ask God is... We think we know how. We think we know what the answer is. And again, that's pride. He says, you have not because you asked not. And of course, this goes back to us seeking our own lust, desiring to do what we want to do, and seeking to fill our desires and not asking of God. You know, to ask of God means to seek counsel, to seek help, 
to seek aid. You know, God wants us. It's so like, it's so like, you know, we even see this in politics. Of course, the president gets blamed for a lot of things that go on in the country. But, you know, he can't write, he can't constitutionally stick his nose into the, the affairs of a state until the governor asks or gives him permission or a city. That's why a lot of the the rioting goes on. Because he's offered it. But they don't ask. They don't want it. And you know, God doesn't stick his nose in our business if we don't want him. If we don't want him. But he's willing and able to help us if we'll ask. That's why Jesus said, ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. You see, God wants us to ask. Verse 3 says, Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. You notice that something that keeps coming up here in each of these verses is our lusts, our desires. Our wanters, you might say. And that's good English, but you know, that's what it is. What we want to do, we want to do. It's self-centered motives. The word amiss means wrongly or improperly. In other words, he says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. If you're asking it for your own glory, for your own honor, for your own uh, uh, profit and benefit, and not for the glory of God, he said, you're asking wrongly. You know, when you pray, do you pray for the glory of God, with the glory of God in mind? Do you pray for God's will in your life, or are you praying for God to bless your will and your desires? You know, that's the question we need to ask ourselves. You know, are we praying for God's will to be done in our lives, Or are we praying for God to bless what we want to do? And that's really what ask and miss is. We ask because we want to do, we want God to bless what I'm doing. I've had people come to me and ask counsel, and I'm thinking when they're asking the question, why you come to me now? You've really only made, already made up your mind. What they want is my approval for what they're planning on doing. <laughs> you know, and that's that's the way we do with God. We go to we, so we so often we go to Him. We want His approval of what our plans are, and we have to stop and ask the Lord: Is this your plan for my life? Is this your plan? Can I? Can can is this your will for me to glorify you in my life? And verse four says, "Ye adulterers, adulterers, and adulteresses." You know, really, what that is is a divided loyalty. We've got. If if we're asking God to 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 put His favor on what my will is 
and not seeking His will, then we have a divided loyalty. Our loyalty is not to God, it's divided, it's to self and the world. I was reminded of reading this morning in Kings. And the kings of Israel, Jehu, for example. Jehu was anointed by a, one of the sons of the prophets, Elisha's, one of Elisha's prophets. Elisha sent him to anoint Jehu, and he told Jehu to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab. Ahab was the, about the wickedest king Israel ever had. And so he did. I mean, he judged, and he, he, he got rid of the house of Ahab. And he would read this phrase about him according to the word of the Lord. And then he, he called an assembly for Baal, but he did it in subtly. And Jonadab, the son of Rechab, him and Jonadab got together and they had this plan to get rid of Baal worship out of Israel, which is a good thing. And so they brought all the Baal worshipers into the house of Baal and they offered a sacrifice and then then Jehu said to his servants, if any one of these get out of here alive, it's your life for theirs. And he killed all the prophets of Baal. But then it says this, however, he turned not from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He still worshipped the calves at Bethel and Dan. He called on the name of the Lord, but not after the due order. See, he, he wanted to worship God, but he wanted to do it his way. His way. You see, that's friendship with the world. And God said that's enmity with God. Friendship of the world, there was a lack of holiness, of, of, of right, uh, the right approach to the Lord. There was a place in the Old Testament that God established to put His name there in Jerusalem where the temple was, where they worship Him, where they bring their sacrifices to the high priest, and they set up their own priests in Bethel and Dan. And said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem, you can worship here. You know, another illustration of that is David bringing up the ark in a new ox cart. I mean, he had a, you know, in today's terminology, he had a brand new, uh, you know, SUV, uh, Cadillac Escalade SUV with a little, you know, with a brand new, uh, uh, you know, cart behind it that had never been used before, no scratches on it or anything, just right fresh off the factory. And he put that cart on there and endeavored to take it to the place where God said to put it. But it wasn't after God's due order. God said there to carry it with the staves. The Levites are to carry it and you're not to touch it. That's a worldly means of doing a right thing. Worldly means. 
trying to use the world's means to fulfill the plan of God. That's what contemporary worship is. Using the world's means and methods, seeker-friendly, meeting the needs of the people, asking them what they want, instead of preaching, thus saith the Lord, we tailor our messages to felt needs. You know, God is still a holy God. Isaiah 57, 15 says, He is the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. His name is Holy. You know, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 31, there's an interesting verse there. It gives a, Romans 1 gives a list of the sins of mankind. Again, they're terrible. And, and then he says this at the end of chapter 1 in verse 28, or verse 32, I think it is. He says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The Bible says in Proverbs, only a fool mocks a sin. You will not get enjoyment or pleasure or recreation out of watching the wickedness out of Hollywood. That's taking pleasure in them that do them. How many... You know, I often wonder how many people, women in particular, watch the soap operas. Which is adultery after adultery after adultery, but what it is. You know, as the world, I used to say, as the world turns, the gravy burns, you know, but anyway. That's um, taking pleasure and then do them. And so, so, that is fellowship with the world. The, the anecdote is that we ought to draw nigh to God. Let's drop down to verse 7 of James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And he says in verse 7, as soon as I find James, I had it a while ago and I can't seem to find it. James 4, uh, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So there needs to be a drawing nigh to God. And of course that comes about as we submit. We need to submit ourselves to God. Submit our will to his way. Seek to do his will and not our own. You, there may not be any, any ill motive in your, in, your, in your desire, but we need to seek his will. What is God's will? In the matters. Uh, that means we have to let go of ourselves. And, you know, the problem is we don't want to be out of control. We want to be able we control ourselves. You know, Jeremiah couldn't control his destiny. He faced death every day. But he had to continually trust what God said to him in chapter 1. I have made thee a brazen wall. They shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail. 
I have made thee a brazen wall. You know, he got cast into the pit. But my miracle God, he got drawn back out. He got smitten by Pasher, the high priest, and put in stocks. But by the miracle of God, he got out. You know, time and time again, you know, Jeremiah, because he was obedient to God, suffered, but God always intervened. Ephesians 5.18 says, And be, ye drunk, be not drunk with wine when it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. If something else is partially filling us, then we're not completely controlled by the Spirit. And that's what it means to submit to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And that's the, the key to resisting the devil, to overcoming the power of the devil. See, we need the power of God to, to overcome the power of the devil. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The, the power of God is greater, but we have to submit to it. We have to be filled with the Spirit of God to overcome the, the, the temptations and the wiles of the devil. And it says, and he will flee from you. You know, the, the devil cannot stand a spirit-filled person. And so, we need to submit to God and draw nigh to Him. You know, again, drawing nigh has the idea of we seek to be near Him. We seek to learn from Him. We seek to be like Him. The disciples were called disciples because they were being discipled. In other words, Jesus was teaching them to, do, to minister, to live like Him, and to minister like He ministered. He was training them. He was teaching them or passing on to them what he had received of his father and how to fish for men, how to reach souls with the gospel, how to be a witness for Christ. And so they draw nigh to him. You know, a good picture of that, I believe, is Mary, who would sit at his feet and listen to him teach. But she wanted to learn everything she could. She knew that her time was short. Because she knew, she understood that he was going to die. And she also understood that he was going to be resurrected. You don't find her at the tomb. She was the one that brought the ointment and anointed his feet for burial. She understood that. Why? Because she sat at his feet and listened intently. She was drawing nigh to him. And the Bible says here, if we draw nigh to God, He will draw nigh to us, to you. He will draw nigh to you. Of course, that requires a cleansing of your hands, you sinners, and purifying your hearts, you double-minded. You know, the double-minded goes back to asking amiss, wanting to control our own lives, wanting, to, wanting our will, not God's will. And, and, and so... Uh, 
We need to purify our hearts and put away the double-mindedness, be afflicted and mourn and weep. That's the idea of mourning over our sin and our double-mindedness. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. See, if we draw not, if we humble ourselves, we are uh, uh, mourn over our sin and our resistance and our stubbornness and our pride against God. If we mourn over that and humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says, He shall lift you up. The word lift here means to raise to dignity, honor, and happiness. To raise you up. That's a promise from God. Somebody has said, peace rules the day when Christ rules the heart. I don't know where I heard this, but I think, I'm not sure who, I, so I shouldn't say who, who it was spoken to, but somebody said to a Christian, I would give the world to be as happy as you are. And he replied, that is what it cost me. That is what it cost me. You see, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. He'll raise you up to honor, dignity, and happiness. You know, what God wants to do this week as we assemble nightly six days in a row to hear the word of God. God, through his word, the living word of God, wants to encourage us. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to challenge us in our walk with him. And renew a right spirit in us. I don't think there's anyone that would say, well, I don't need any of that. We're all work in progress from the time we get saved. You know, James, or, uh, Philippians 1 6 says, He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's going to continue to work in your life till you go to be with Him. So we all have room for work, for improvement. And so this week, let's seek the Lord, seek His will to hear His word that his word may benefit and profit us for his glory and for his honor. Let's pray.